trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Helan Habila, an acclaimed international and award-winning author, has never shied away from important issues. Whether he is writing a factual account of the kidnapping of young girls by terrorists or a fictionalized version of interviews he conducted with African migrants for his latest book, Travelers, Habila, as he has said, describes history through the eyes of ordinary people. A professor of creative writing at George Mason University, Habila is the author of four novels that combine compelling narratives and characters with current examples of oppression and exploitation. Habila is also the author of The Chikbak Girls, The Boko Haram Kidnappings and Islamist Militancy in Nigeria, which tells the story of the 2014 kidnappings of 276 young girls by the terrorist group Boko Haram. Researching that book not only exposed Habila to the dangers of a war zone, but forced him to confront his homeland like he had never seen it. Helan Habila, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Washington. Thank you for having me. Well, for those who don't know you, let's start with a little history. You grew up in the northeast part of Nigeria. Talk to us about what your childhood was like. Well, I was born in 1967. I grew up in a town called Gombe. This is in the northeastern part of Nigeria. At that time, it was a very peaceful, very quiet place. My childhood was almost idyllic with my parents, brothers and sisters growing up. You know, we didn't have much to worry about. The economy was good then. In the 70s, Nigeria is one of the biggest oil exporters. So in the 70s, the economy was really good and things were good for my parents. So um, it was good for us as children as well. Security was good. There wasn't all that crime like you have now. So looking back, I would say I had a very good childhood growing up, nothing to worry about. So what ethnic group? My ethnic group is called Tangale. Tangale. Yeah. Speakers of Tangale live in a town called Kaltungo and Biliri in Gombe State. But the language I grew up speaking is called Hausa. This is the regional oh, yeah. um, lingua okay. franca. Okay, yeah. so the Hausa peoples make up that region. Correct. Yes. Just okay. like you have the Igbos in the southeast That's right. and I southwest. Get it. Yeah. So, so you would be Hausa. I'm Tangale, but I grew up speaking Hausa. Ah, I got you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I get it. I get it. Brothers and sisters? Lots of them. I have seven in all siblings, one sister, and five brothers. Wow. So, yeah, big family. Big family. So, given that your interest is in creative writing, where did that come from? I think it began with my interest in listening to stories as a child. So, we lived in this huge compound with different families. The women at night would gather the children and they would tell us stories, mostly folk tales. They would perform these stories in a very, very compelling way. So I grew up then listening to these folk tales, watching this performance by our mothers. I think that's where my interest in storytelling began. And then of course from there, I went to elementary school and then I started reading. So from listening to actually reading stories in books, 
gradually my interest in writing began to develop. So I think if I look back, I think that's where it all began. Well, they say you were a champion storyteller in school. What was it that made you so good? So what happened was in elementary school, we had this one period where the students would be called to the front of the class to tell stories in vernacular, in Hausa, in the local language. So I was quite good at it because I would basically repeat the stories I heard from my mother the previous night. And I was so good at performing it that they would actually take me from class to class <laughs> to tell my stories. So that's where that came from, just a kind of repetition of what I heard. But, you know, in every repetition, there's also improvement and an addition because that's the nature of oral storytelling. There's no exact repetition of the story that you hear. You always bring some elements into it. So obviously I was quite good at kind of introducing these new elements into my performance, and that must have made the difference. You know, we might be living in the best time in history for communications from people of color because of what we see with Netflix, because of the proliferation of television shows and series. My mother is over-the-top consumer of Nigerian movies and Nigerian series that she's able to get from Netflix and other entities like that. And I've never seen a time, at least in my life, where there's been a proliferation of black film and stories like I see today. Uh, a significant portion of that, however, is either audio or visual means. So what is it about the written word that compels you, even at a time where it's less appreciated on the global scale? That's an interesting question. And I appreciate the distinction you made about the different modes of storytelling. There's the cinema, or what we call Nollywood in Nigeria, which kind of began gradually by people who would have these handheld cameras and they would improvise and start shooting these movies and they caught on very, very fast. And it's one of the biggest film industries in the world now, Nigerian film industry. And before then, there were also dramatic performances on, in theaters and you know, on stage. And of course, there's oral storytelling, just like you know, my mother used to, to do to us um, when we were growing up. So there's all this. But gradually, for me, I think it's a matter of temperament, I would say, that I've gravitated more towards reading and writing because I think my nature as an introvert pulled me more towards that. And for me, it was always important to be by myself, quiet, reading my book, and trying to make sense of the world through my reading. So I think that must be one of the reasons why I'm more interested in reading and writing in written form than in film or stage or even radio. I'm more of a writer. No, I get it. So in 2013, you began a year-long fellowship in Germany through the German Academic Exchange Service. My understanding is this is where you actually started the book Travelers. And we'll talk a little bit about Travelers as we move on. But help me understand how that fellowship changed you or impacted you or how it changed your perspectives as a writer. So this was in 2013 when I went over to Germany with my family because that's the fellowship they invite you with your whole family. It was interesting in the sense that this was the first time I was living in a country where I couldn't speak the language. 
I had lived in England, of course I also live in America, but this was the first time I was living in a place where you know, I could understand the language or speak the language. So there was that sense of being an outsider immediately. Even though we lived in this kind of privileged bubble as a fellow invited by the government, living in a community with other artists, but you still have that sense of being an outsider. And that was, I think, what must have drawn me to these migrants when I started seeing them empathizing and understanding their situation as outsiders. So from there, there was an event that happened. A ship carrying migrants from North Africa capsized in the Mediterranean. Wow. Yeah, and about 300 people died. And I was invited by a newspaper in Germany to write an essay about it, to give my take as an African on this. So that's really where my interest in the migrants and their stories kind of Ah, so that's where Travelers was born. Exactly. Amazing, amazing. So talk to me about the generations of African writers. I grew up as a kid, a big fan of Chinua Achebe and the stories that he wrote. But how has the focus of your generation of African writers, how's that focus now different from the focus before? So most critics would divide the generations of African writers into three. There's the first generation, like you mentioned, that would be Chinua Achebe and Wole Shoinka and others like him. And then came the second generation after independence. And after that, there are people like me, the third generation, or what we call the post-national or post-nationalist generation. The first generation was more concerned with fighting for independence, anti-colonial activism, because writers were really activists. They saw themselves as activists. So there was no division between politics and literature. Literature was a legitimate tool for fighting for independence. So that was the main focus of the first generation of writers. When you read books like Things Fall Apart, for instance, it's about the coming of the white man mm-hmm. to, to Okonko. you know yeah, how yeah. he fought, yeah, and he eventually died. So it showed this, what we call culture clash between the West and African tradition. That was the main focus of most of these first generation writers. Then the second generation, which came after independence, and most of their writing was driven by their disappointment because they thought that after independence, things were going to be perfect, you know? These African politicians who promised so much were going to usher in this new golden age of, for Africa. It didn't happen. So most of their focus was critical of the government. It's always about government, always about nation building, always trying to lead the way and show you know what the best way forward was for, for the nation. So that was always the focus of these writers. Then came younger writers like myself, third generation. And why I call them the post-national or post-nationalist is because now we begin to turn away from the excessive focus on politics, on the nation itself, and began to write about other subject matters. So take, for instance, when I talk about travelers, which is not even set in Africa. It's not it's set in Nigeria. It's not about the Nigerian nation. Of course, it's political, but it's about other places. So the emphasis now is not on nationalism or independence or nation building, but about global issues. So there's almost a kind of pushing 
of the boundaries of what it means to be an African, because you can be an African, not just in Africa, but outside of Africa. So it's almost as if we are trying to find out, to imagine what it means to be an African in the world, not just in your nation or in Africa, but just at large in the world. You know, I want to spend some time talking about the Chibok girls, because it was such a huge story at the time the kidnapping's happening, but it's now kind of faded from view. And so I'm really interested in your personal perspective of A, why this happened, and then I think it might be valuable to talk about what took place since that time period. So what compelled you to write about the Chibok girls? What compelled me to write about the Chibok girls was my interest, I guess, to try to understand what was happening in Nigeria, in my part of Nigeria where I was born, where I grew up, because Chibok is actually just a few hundred kilometers from my hometown. So I grew up there, and I know that part of the country very well. So, so much had happened after I had left. So it's almost as if I was reading about a different country, because the Nigeria I knew of my childhood was a very peaceful, quiet, tolerant society. And then here was this thing happening, girls kidnapped in their school, by these Islamic militants. So in a way, I wanted to go back to that place, my hometown, my region of the country, and try to kind of make sense of it all. Because this was such a huge, momentous thing that Islamists had taken over a large swath of territory in the Northeast, bordering my hometown. How did that happen? So I wanted an answer to all these questions, and I felt compelled to go back and to ask and to see things for myself and to kind of try to make sense of it. That was really, I think, the motivating factor, the primary one that took me back. So what actually happened? Why did it happen? So the kidnapping is just one aspect of it, actually a minor aspect of it, even though it became the most talked about aspect of it. But what happened was this group that calls itself Boko Haram, but Boko Haram is an Arabic word meaning Western education is bad or Western education is taboo. So that's their mantra. And you can tell from the meaning of the words that basically they do not trust Western education. They do not trust democracy. They do not trust the government. I think it started from the failure of democracy in Nigeria. There was so much corruption. Democracy was not really working for anyone, especially for the young people who were graduating, who were coming to the cities to look for work. Things were not working for them. And all the time they were seeing these politicians living these extravagant lives, stealing money. It was in the papers, on TV, and they, was, they saw it. So these religious leaders started emerging and started preaching, condemning the government and promising these young people a better life, not just religiously, but also financially. The leader of Boko Haram, who started the whole sect, his name is Mohammed Yusuf, actually had this huge compound where he fed these young people, he opened schools for them, and he was actually giving them this microfinancing, giving them loans. So he was actually providing a better life for them here on earth, and also promising them a better life when they die. So that was the way it started emerging. And then gradually, there was a conflict between the group and the government, which is inevitable. It actually happened that some of the followers of Mohammed Yusuf were stopped by the military, and a fight ensued, and some of them were killed. And that led to a larger conflict. The compound of Mohammed Yusuf was invaded 
and he was arrested and eventually killed. So that really escalated everything. They went underground for about six months. Then they came back again and started attacking prisons to free their members who were arrested. And from there, they started killing moderate clerics in mosques and also killing Christians in churches and politicians. And of course, the government always retaliated. So it kept escalating and escalating. And then it turned into this full-blown war between the Islamists and the government. And then eventually it led to kidnappings. They would kidnap people for money because they had to raise money somehow to finance their war. And also kidnappings of people to use as shield in case the government came to attack them. So Chibok fell you know, within that range of activities. And they came to Chibok actually to steal things from the government girls' secondary school. And they didn't intend to kidnap the girls. The girls just happened to be there, and they took them, 276 of them, and took them to their hideout in the forest. It's called Sambisa Forest. Was it a mountainous region? Because the understanding was that the government didn't know where they were. This is a huge area. You know, it's like a game reserve. So that's where they hide. That's their headquarters. And it's very hard for the government to go in there because the roads are very bad. Again, another failure of democracy and government because they didn't build the roads. And so... It's easy for these militants to hide there and to venture out from there and to attack banks and wherever the military and then kind of go back. So the government just couldn't find the girls because of such a huge, huge area we're talking about. You mentioned earlier that you grew up about, I guess my my understanding is about 160 miles away from Chibok in northeast Nigeria. Yes. So when you returned, what were your observations in terms of how it had changed? So much had changed. The first visible signs, of course, were the roadblocks and the military presence. Everywhere on the roads you traveled, you had to stop and present your ID cards because the military set up all these roadblocks because to try to to counter the terrorists and restrict their movement, but it affected everyone. So that was the first visible sign of the change that you noticed when you start traveling in the area. And then, of course, when I went to Meiduguri, that's the the town where Boko Haram has its base, there's a curfew, of course, constant curfew. Mm -hmm. Um, People were not allowed to move freely. And then, of course, you saw all the marks of the fight between the government and the terrorists. Buildings with bullet holes in them, compounds raised down. And then, of course, when you travel, you see schools burnt down. That's one thing they always did was to destroy schools as they travel. Wherever they go, they destroy schools because, like I said, they don't believe in education and they tried as much as they could to intimidate parents from sending children to school, teachers from teaching, and to destroy the visible, the physical structures of the schools. So these are the things that you noticed um, as you travel in the, in the Northeast, in this territory, that the war was taking place. That is interesting. You destroy the one thing that they knew could be liberating uh, to people. Exactly. Wow, that's amazing. So there's an anecdote in the book about you going to an IDP camp for internally displaced people. And uh, you were getting a tour by a commander there. So this was a commander who I was able to get in touch with, and he agreed to take me around to the internally displaced people's camp, that's the IDP camps. I later found out that he had a bounty on his head for this ridiculous amount, like 16 million naira. 
just a hundred thousand dollars or so. Okay. So of course at the time, even though I knew that, I wasn't thinking about that. You don't think about it until much much later when you when you had you know gone back to your room and then you realize, oh my God, this was what it meant. This was what was happening. But I also mentioned the money because money was such an important part of the war between Boko Haram and the government. Boko Haram had taken over this territory, like I said. Borno State, that's the area where they're based, has these boundaries with three different countries. There's Cameroon, there's Chad, and there's Niger. So they were controlling all the commercial activities between Nigeria and these countries, whether it's trading in cattle, smuggling, all these things, they were controlling it. And they were also robbing banks and hijacking government payrolls just to sponsor their war. So there were all these aspects of the war where money was always very, very important. And at the point, they were really flush with cash. So they were paying these bounties on the military and people who they didn't like. And some of them ended up dead as a result of that. That is amazing. So what were your thoughts as you were walking with this guy? Were you worried that maybe somebody would take a hit out on him and <laughs> you would get caught in the crossfire? I mean, what were you thinking at the time? Yeah, that was my thought. Of course, I was scared, but I was also determined to follow this guy and to find out what was going on. You don't dwell too much on it, you know, but you manage to suspend your fear and your anxiety until, you know, you have what you want. So I wasn't thinking too much. Let me just put it that way. Oh, I hear you. (laughs) So what were some of the dangers you encountered? In your book, you describe seeing dead bodies, having close encounters with suicide bombers, that kind of thing. One of them happened after we left the camp where he took me to. We found out that after we had left about a few hours, a bomb actually exploded. A lady wearing suicide vest detonated it just a few hours after we had left. So that was one of them. We're lucky that we just went out there. We just made it right out in time, We right? just made it out in time. Then when I went to Chibok, they told me that just about two days before we got there, another suicide bomber, two of them actually came to Chibok dressed as women and wearing their vests, and they detonated it and killed some of the military guys. They just ran into the military position and detonated the suicide vest. So it was just happening. Everywhere you turned, there was this violence and killings. And yeah, these are things that we saw. So the kidnappers originally took 276 girls, right? Correct. And the word is that 57 escaped the day they were taken and that you were able to speak with a number of them, right? Yes. So what did you learn? What was happening to them? So these were young girls, 16 to 18 years old, because they were in secondary school when they were taken. It's just sad to hear their stories, and their bravery was very impressive. Because as they were taken by the kidnappers, what they did was they jumped off the trucks by grabbing onto tree branches and then jumping, throwing themselves off the trucks. Some of them, you know, broke their arms, some of them broke their legs, but they managed to escape. So you have to just admire their courage, even though they knew they they could die. They could get killed by these people, but they did it. Another thing is just how ordinary these young girls were. You know, I asked them, you know, what do you want to be when you graduate? They will tell you that, oh, they want to be teachers. They want to be doctors. So just the ordinariness of these individuals, fellow citizens of mine who are just caught in this crazy moment, in this war between this Islamist and the government. And of course, the government wasn't doing that much to help the situation. They were not 
doing as much as they could to help them. So you felt really sorry for them, but you also admire their determination and their courage. And you also feel bad that their childhood has been disrupted forever. You know, oh, yeah. there was no going back. And these are young girls. And then, of course, you also think of the ones who were not able to escape, who were still in the forest. They have become sex slaves to these terrorists. They are going to give birth to their children who are going to form the next generation of Islamist militants. So there are all these things that I was thinking about as I talked to the girls and as, as I looked at them. Because I'm a father myself, I have daughters. And you realize that they didn't do anything to deserve this. It just happened to them because of so many factors outside of their control. Like the saying goes, by the grace of God, there go I. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you realize it could happen to anyone. Talk to me about the mothers who forced the Nigerian government to pay attention to what was happening. So these women, mothers to most of the, some of the girls that were taken, decided to form this organization of mothers. And they started speaking out because they got tired of waiting for the government to do something. The government wasn't proactive enough. So they started giving interviews to foreign journalists and local journalists as well, NGOs, traveling to Lagos, traveling to Abuja to meet the politicians and just making a nuisance of themselves. And they are not rich people, they're just very poor people. So they just pulled together whatever resources they could just to travel and to keep talking about their daughters. And that brought about a lot of change. You might have heard of Ring Back Our Girls movement and all these things that happened. Mm -hmm. It's as a result of these women, what they were doing. Um, And of course, the support of journalists and ordinary Nigerians who didn't know much about what was happening until these women started talking about it and giving interviews and traveling tirelessly. And they're still doing it. So very, very impressive. So you say they're still doing it. So where do things stand now with the kidnapped girls and the fight against Boko Haram? So out of the 276, 57 escaped. And a few of them also were released because of negotiations between the government and the terrorists. Some terrorists were released from prison in exchange for some of the girls. So it's been ongoing. And some of the girls actually escaped on their own from the camps. Some of them were discovered just wandering in the forest and then were discovered to be from Chibo part of the Chibok girls that were taken from the school. So at the moment, about 100 of them are still not accounted for. Really? They're still missing, yeah, about 100, yeah. Most people think that we may never see them again. It's seven, eight years now since it happened. So this hope is beginning to dwindle. But again, sometimes the hope is reignited because just last year, two girls were discovered. They escaped from the camp. So they're still alive. That's the hope. Even though, of course, some of the girls that I talked to who escaped said that a lot of them had died from childbirth, no doctors to attend to them. Some of them were bitten by snakes. Some of them just starved to death. Some of them were killed because of the fighting between the government and the terrorists on the bombings. But some of them now we know are still alive because, like I said, just last year, some of them were discovered. They escaped. So there's still hope that these 100 or so girls might still be released eventually. And, and so the fight against uh, Boko Haram still continues to this day? It has continued, even though it has changed in nature, it has evolved into banditry. That's what we have now. So these Islamists have joined camps with bandits and thugs, and they've kind of spread out from their base in the northeast and moved to the northwest and, and the north-north, and they're just wreaking havoc all over the country, just kidnapping, going to schools, going to government ministries and just kidnapping people. So it's devolved into this crazy situation of insecurity in northern Nigeria. 
Wow, that is amazing. So your book, Oil on Water, is indeed a work of fiction, yet when you look at it, you get a pretty factual view of the Niger Delta, right? The the actual environmental situation there, especially. How much are you trying to use the fictional writing as an educational tool to what's happening in the Delta? So the Niger Delta is unique because of the oil. Of course. Produced there. What I wanted to do with the book was to show the effect of the activities of oil extraction in the area and how it's destroying the environment. I was careful. I didn't really want to be too political. I didn't want to preach about the environment. I'm always aware that my job as a storyteller is to tell a story and to entertain. But sometimes you use culture, you use entertainment to educate as well. So I was conscious of that as I traveled, as I researched, and as I wrote the book. How do you make it interesting? How do you make your characters come alive on their Mm -hmm. own to be interesting from the way they speak, their mannerisms, you know? How do you introduce conflict? How do you resolve this conflict? So I, I did all that. What I did was to use the form of a thriller, like a detective story. There was right. a kidnapping. Then these reporters went into the interior to find out about proof of life. They were hired by the oil company to go and find out about this kidnapped British woman. So that's the form I used, like a thriller, like a detective story. Ah, so that is interesting. Yeah, so but then as they travel, through their eyes, you see the environment, how it's been degraded by the activities of the oil companies. You see the oil spills and you see the the sites of conflict between the rebels and the government. So just to kind of show it visual impressions. Is that a semi-realistic interpretation of what's happening in the Niger Delta currently? Yeah, exactly. Because I interviewed a lot of these militants, like they call themselves militants, and also people who were kidnapped. And people who did the kidnapping, I interviewed them and I watched a lot of videos, a lot of hours of videos to research. So this is an actual scenario for happening in the Niger Delta about the kidnappings, environmental degradation, gas flares and the conflict, the incessant conflict between these militants and the government and the oil companies and the kidnappings of oil company workers. It reached its peak, I think, in 2007 or so. Then it changed a little bit, but it's still going on. There's still destruction of the environment, unfortunately, still going on. The kidnappings, not so much, but still going on in the background. I noticed that you don't really have a whole lot of good things to say about oil companies in your book. Well, it's very hard to find anything good to say about oil companies, to be honest. They are there for only one reason. They are there for profit. They're there for profit. And they don't care what they do to get that profit. They can destroy the whole environment to get the profit. They don't care about the ordinary folks who live in the environment. We're talking about the Niger Delta. This is an area of about 30 million people. It used to be one of the most beautiful areas in the whole country. It used to be called the lungs of West Africa because of the variety of animal life and the the rivers that flowed in the area. And then in one generation, because oil was discovered, the first oil well was dug in 1958. Wow. So from then till now, there's a total change. It just... Animal life is gone. Decimated it. Decimated. The rivers are just... When I went there, you could just see the oil slick on the water. Farmers and hunters, so all that is taken away from them. They cannot farm because of acid rains destroying the crops. They cannot fish because the oil, the fish are dead in the water because of all this. 
so it's again very hard to find anything good to say about the oil companies despite all their propaganda oh they build schools they give employment but they're taking away billions and billions of dollars and they're giving back just pennies pennies yeah so this oil on water that started as a movie script is that right that is correct so what happened with that <laughs> so i was contacted by this film company in england this was around 2007 when the kidnappings were really really beginning to talked about by the media and they wanted me to write a film script for them about the violence in the niger delta i think they wanted something similar to you know blood diamonds yeah that yeah yeah that's right yeah so but they, they wanted to do something similar to that but with about oil yeah they call it actually they actually call the project blood oil <laughs> so, so they were not even oh how original <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> So they wanted me to write that kind of script. Mm -hmm. And the trope is you have this crazy scenario in Africa, then some white person would come and save. No, no, no. I get day. it. I, 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 I get it. Yeah. I, so I, I understand the storyline. Exactly. I wasn't comfortable with that. I did the first draft and then we parted ways. Uh, I gave them the script. Then I went back. My interest was always about the people. And the more I researched, for me, it was a story about these Nigerians, these local people, and all the things that they had to go through because of these activities. So I wrote my book, making the people, the villagers, the focus of my story instead of having this white savior coming to save them. Oh, that is interesting. You, so your most recent book, Travelers, is a fictionalized version of interviews you conducted with migrants who went from Africa to Europe, right? Yes. Ultimately, as one reviewer said, it contains stories about characters trying to find their footing where they feel no connection. For the people you interviewed, was telling their stories a way to find their footing? Yes, I think so. Imagine these people traveling, risking their lives in the Sahara Desert, in the Mediterranean. A lot of them dying, mothers drowning with their children in the boats, and then coming to Europe thinking that at last they will find refuge and welcome, but they don't get that. Instead, they are dumped into these camps and neglected, vilified, and treated as invaders, basically. It's very tough on them. You begin to lose your sense of identity and who you are and what you're doing because you are being criminalized just for trying to find refuge because you're escaping from something, from death, literally. So for them, I guess, talking to me, telling me their stories, was a way of almost trying to make me see them, to be seen, mm -hmm. because they don't feel seen by these governments, these agencies, and it's almost as if they're telling me the story and also telling themselves the story, kind of reminding themselves of why they left home. One of them, for instance, was telling me about how he left Somalia because some warlord wanted to marry his 10-year-old daughter, and he just couldn't do it. So hmm. he uprooted his whole family. So for him, he wanted me to see him as a father, as a husband, not just this statistic that we read about in the papers. He wanted to be seen. And I guess that's what I tried to do in the book, to just go beyond the statistics and to really give you this human story of these people. For me, they are heroes. They are brave. Because I couldn't imagine going through all they went through just to save their family and to try to find a better life for their families. Do you incorporate your writings into your classes here at Mason? Not my writing per se, but my experience as a writer, 
because it's very awkward for you to teach your own book <laughs> in class. You can't critique your own book. So basically, I try to make my students understand that there are different traditions of storytelling. There isn't just one tradition. And because I'm coming from a different tradition, from African storytelling tradition, which is a bit different from the Western tradition, so I try to make them read as much as they could outside their immediate tradition and to make them realize that the most important thing is to tell a story. And there's more than one way of telling a story. There's no tradition that's superior to other traditions. They are just different. They are not inferior or superior. They're just different. And I try to encourage them to understand that and to free them to experiment with different storytelling traditions. So I think that's what I bring to the classroom. Mm, That is great. So writing can be such a personal thing. As we start to wrap up here, I'm curious how you teach a skill such as creative writing without getting in the way of a person's individualism? Yeah, a very good question. I think that's also the challenge of the workshop model and the paradox of the workshop. Because in the workshop, you bring students together in a community, whereas writing is such an individual pursuit. You lock yourself in your room and you write from your experience, from your imagination. Whereas in a workshop, you collaborate and you critique each other's stories. So there's that difficulty. How do you negotiate that? What I try to do is to make the students understand that despite all the feedback that you get from your classmates, despite all the comments and the critiques, at the end of the day, you are the one who is responsible for your story. You have to trust your guts. You have to believe in yourself. Take all the comments, all the suggestions, all the critiques, but when you go to your room, when you rewrite that story, it's your duty, it's your vision that you're trying to express. And I think that's where the individualism is maintained. Always come back, always trust yourself. Right, as a right, yeah. right. So what's your next book project? Actually, I'm going on sabbatical in the spring. So I'm well, looking sabbaticals are great time, <laughs> great times to write. Yeah, that's what I hope to do to write as much as I can. I'm trying to finish a novel that I'm working on now. So this would be a good chance for me to finish it. And this is actually going to be my first book that's set in America. So I'm looking forward to that. Outstanding, outstanding. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And that is going to do it for this edition of Access to Excellence. I want to thank Helan Habila, the award-winning author and professor of creative writing at George Mason University for sharing his time and his experiences. I'm Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.